Hebrews 20.20, we see Jesus increment 274, which will be following in line with increments 268 and 270, where we dealt with the AD 70 trajectory in Hebrews. This will essentially be called the AD 70 trajectory in Hebrews part 3, and we will be getting into that. So we'll begin with prayer. Father, I thank you for this opportunity, and I pray that the message will proceed forth with an order and a clarity that will <clears throat> serve to edify the New Covenant community, the hearers who listen to this, and may it result in the upbuilding of the body of Christ in love. And may those who receive this message speak the truth of it in love to one another. And I thank you, Father, for the Holy Spirit, the hegemonic spirit who leads us, who makes clarity out of obscurity, life out of death, and issues forth in love, joy, and peace. May all these be the fruits of this message. In Jesus' name, amen. There are a number of arcs of coherence in the book of Hebrews. An arc of coherence is something that I originally read about in Steven Pinker's book on literary style and how to write creatively in the 21st century. And an arc of coherence is when there's a literary thematic consistency in a writing, whether it's a letter that you write and you want it to have a thematic consistency, whether it's a sermon that you proclaim or preach, any document or a novel even, a book, the thematic consistency should be the aim. So there are a number of arcs of coherence or examples of thematic consistency in Hebrews. A very significant instance of thematic consistency is that of the enthronement of Jesus at the right hand of God the Father, the majesty in heaven. This arc of coherence, as we call it, which is a consistent trajectory of dogma or doctrine in the word, this arc of coherence is rooted in Psalm 110.1 or the Septuagint 109.1 and it virtually travels throughout the entire homily. When you see this in print, the, the message in print, and it will be hopefully in print, you're going to see a lot of arrows such as Hebrews 1.3 and then an arrow to 1.13 and then an arrow to 8.1 and then an arrow to 12. Two, because these are all, this is a trajectory. Picture it as an arrow being fired from a bow, and it travels along a course or a trajectory or a line. And there is this, it becomes an arc of coherence throughout Hebrews. It goes from 1.3 to 1.13 to 8.1 to 12.2. And so you begin to identify an arc of coherence, a thematic consistency in Hebrews and that is that of the enthroned Christ and of Jesus Christ enthroned in the heavens at the right hand of the Father. And this goes along with a parallel arc of coherence. There's another parallel arc of coherence. 
or thematic consistency or trajectory with the theme of the priesthood of Jesus Christ and a motif of his priesthood. And that goes along with something rooted in Psalm 110.4, same Psalm, but 110.4, Septuagint 109.4, the arch priesthood of Jesus Christ. We have a similar arc, Hebrews 2.17 to 3.1, and then an arrow to 4.14, another arrow to 5.6, then to 5, 10, 6, 20, 7, 11, 7, 16, 7, 17, 7, 21, 7, 26, 8, 1, 9, 11, 10, 11 to 12, 10, 21, 13, 11 to 13. You can see that some of these arcs of coherence <clears throat> virtually travel through the entire content or substance of this writing. <clears throat> there are obviously arcs of coherence in other parts of the New Testament. There is an arc of coherence throughout the entirety of the New Testament that we would call Jesus Christ and him crucified from 1 Corinthians 2.2, but throughout. We could say that there are arcs of coherence from Genesis to Revelation, the same thing, these all speaking of Jesus Christ. These thematic trajectories reveal a remarkable consistency of thought, an ordered thought in Hebrews as a unified whole. The entire document coheres as an instance of God communicating himself to the readers in Jesus Christ. So this, in fact, let's call it that. Hebrews, because of its unified entirety, coheres as an instance of God communicating himself to us in Jesus Christ, his son. That's what the whole New Testament's about. That's what the whole Bible is about. That's what Hebrews is about in its own idiosyncratic way. It opens up with God, who at various times and by sundry means spoke fragmentarily and the prophets has in our day as in these last days spoken in a son. He communicates himself to us in his son. This is a trajectory throughout Hebrews because Hebrews one one and two, you could put an arrow all the way through thirteen twenty one and read those both, and you have an inclusio of the entire body of this homily. The subject of the new covenant itself, which we spent so much time on recently, has its own thematic consistency, its own arc of coherence in Hebrews. Rooted in the oracle of God in the prophet Jeremiah, 31, 31 to 34, or the Septuagint, 38, 31 to 34, Quoted in toto in Hebrews 8, 8b through 12, there's an identifiable literary arc and therefore a spiritual thematic arc like that of an arrow that travels to Hebrews 9, 15 to 17 where the new covenant comes up again all the way through to 10, 15 to 18 and then we seem to lose the arrow in its trajectory. We lose the arrow. We think maybe it dropped at 10, 15 to 18, but 
we find later in the penultimate verse of the main body of the discourse. The main body of that discourse ends with Hebrews 13.20. So in the penultimate, the second to the last verse in the main body of the discourse in 13.20, there it is, the new covenant, the everlasting covenant, the blood of the everlasting covenant, in, in fact. And that's another arc of coherence in Hebrews, but it's also something we've called the blood groove that travels all the way from Genesis through Revelation, indicating the significance of the blood of Jesus Christ or his death for us on the cross. Along with the trajectory of this arrow of the new covenant, there is a blood trail, I call it, a blood trail as if our literary arrow had been dipped in blood before flying from its bow. So we have the parallel arc or trajectory of our arrow as a kind of blood trail. We're going to find out that the road, the highway into the Holy of Holies is a blood-paved highway. In Hebrews 10.20, it's something that the Holy Spirit makes clear to us, as we're going to see in Hebrews 9.8 also. So along with the trajectory of this arrow of the new covenant, there's the blood trail, whose blood, speaking of Jesus Christ, whose, where blood, especially the blood of Jesus, is often associated sometimes very explicitly and clearly with the new covenant. This is revelatory, given that Jesus speaks of the new covenant as being, quote, established by my blood, Luke twenty two twenty, compared with Matthew twenty six twenty eight, Mark fourteen twenty four. Now, a twenty first century person could actually do a very profitable study, apart from the one we're doing in Hebrews entirely, but they could do an entire study called Arcs of Coherence in Hebrews and approach it from the standpoint of arcs of, of thematic consistency in Hebrews, bringing out the main themes, and you get just as much out of it as a straight-line exegesis, and we're trying to mix up a little bit of everything in this one, in this study. In this passage, where we're currently located in Hebrews, in our travel through the epistle, and it is an epistle, a sermon, and it is a sermon, a discourse, and it is that, a document, and it's that. But in the passage we're currently located in Hebrews, there's a minor but not insignificant arc of coherence regarding the tent, skene, or the tabernacle, introduced in Hebrews 8.2, and then again in 8.5, The flight of this arrow, or this trajectory in Hebrews, is spotted in Hebrews 9.1. It's viewed or sighted again in Hebrews 9.1 and following. And in Hebrews 9.1, the arc or trajectory of the AD 70 arc or or trajectory is also continuing as it jutted up a little bit in 8.13. This trajectory or arc is not separate from that of the new covenant. That is the the tent continuum, the the tent trajectory. It's not separate from that of the new covenant, but parallel with it. In fact, the distinction between the old tabernacle, known 
to the wandering Exodus generation in the desert and the priesthood of the Old Covenant, which ultimately that tent, as it were, was transferred first to the temple in Jerusalem and then to the second temple where it existed in the temple in Jerusalem from 516 B.C. until A.D. 70. Now, it's my view so far, but it has to come into more clarity, that Hebrews was written on the verge of the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70, therefore the destruction of the old tent entirely, we could say. So, in fact, the distinction between the old tabernacle known to the wandering Exodus generation and the priesthood of the old covenant, that tent, in essence, or at least its symbolic meaning was transferred first to the temple in Jerusalem and then to the second temple where it existed again from 516 B.C. to 70 A.D., nearly 600 years. And the tent or tabernacle of the new covenant is distinguished from that and called not of this creation in Hebrews 9, 10, and 11. And it's the basis for a pastoral warning being issued in the totality of the spirit-inspired Hebrews homily. This entire homily can be consisting not only of teaching, not only of exposition, not only of a lot of other things, but mostly it is a pastoral warning to his readers on the verge of the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple or the tent, the old tent, the tent of this creation. So we have the continuity of the AD 70 trajectory. The AD 70 trajectory continues in Hebrews. Consistency of thought in turn reveals clarity of presentation. There's important, it's important to maintain arcs of coherence in any writing or any form of communication. Consistency of thought in turn reveals clarity of presentation. In Revelation 22.1, we're presented with an artistic conception by the divine artisan of the Holy Spirit in divine procession. The Holy Spirit proceeding from the throne of God and the Lamb is the image, the apocalyptic image. Remember our first example of an arc of coherence in Hebrews, that of the enthronement of Jesus, who also is known as the Lamb enthroned in Revelation 5, 6, 13, 8. We could compare with Hebrews 9, 14. He offered himself without blemish is a definite allusion to a Lamb he often offered himself without spot through the eternal spirit to God the Father. And that offering has the power to purge or purify our conscience from dead works so that we may serve the living God as a household of priests. So once again, clarity is our subject now. Along with consistency and arcs of coherence, there is clarity, and I'll mention this principle again, this principle was born in my study a few hours ago. It says, consistency of thought in turn reveals clarity of presentation. We could call that a thesis, I guess. 
Consistency of thought in turn reveals clarity of presentation. That's why we should always, those of us who communicate the word should always pray that what we communicate will come across with clarity, with power, with conviction, and of course with the ability to build up and convey and communicate God himself. But in this artistic apocalyptic image of Revelation 22.1, the Holy Spirit is portrayed as a river, clear as crystal. Lampron os crystallon, crystallon, crystal clear river, proceeding from the throne of God and the Lamb. Clarity, then, characterizes the Spirit of God. 1 Corinthians 2.12, the Spirit of Jesus Christ, Philippians 1.19, the Spirit of Grace, Hebrews 10.29, the Lord the Spirit, 2 Corinthians 3.18, the Spirit of Truth, who guides us into all truth, John 16.13. He's the one that makes the Word of God clear. He's the one that makes Jesus Christ and him crucified clear to us. He's the one that makes us see Jesus clearly, and in seeing him clearly, seeing everyone clearly as objects of his saving grace and saving faithfulness. As we'll see in our exegesis, which we hopefully will get to a little more carefully in upcoming increments, the Holy Spirit was making it clear and you can look to Hebrews 9.8 for this, making it clear that the way into the Holy of Holies, for example, had not yet been disclosed all while the first tent was still standing. That's Hebrews 9.8. The Holy Spirit was making it clear, and is still now making it clear, that the way into the heavenly Holy of Holies had not yet been disclosed while the first tent, tabernacle, was still standing. Hebrews 9.8 then is our focus verse here for that. Regarding clarity, the Spirit of Christ, according to the scripture, the Spirit of Christ which, who was in the prophets made clear, that's what the language Peter uses in 1 Peter 1.11, he was making clear to the prophets that the suffering and the glory of the Messiah that would bring salvation was not to happen in their time, but for another future time. So they were speaking about things, and they knew it. They knew they were speaking about something that was going to occur, not in their lifetimes, but in a future generation, to a future generation. Of course, it would include all humanity from all times, but the actual event of the Messiah suffering and then entering into his glory would come and has come in the time of Peter's readers, in 1 Peter 1.11. The Holy Spirit made that clear to them. So they didn't run around saying, the rapture is coming in our generation or Jesus is coming in our generation. They knew it was a time down the road. They knew it was not in their time. 
Why? Because the Spirit of Christ, which was in them, made it clear. So here we have a kind of an arc of coherence in itself. The Holy Spirit makes clear, as it says in Hebrews 9, 8. If he makes clear that the way into the Holy of Holies was not yet seen, then when Christ died, the way into the Holy of Holies is now seen. In fact, that way is a blood-paved highway paved by the Lord Jesus Christ in his death and burial, resurrection and ascension. The Holy Spirit makes that clear. We have a reference to the Holy Spirit and clarity most dramatically in Revelation 22.1, as we've seen, a crystal clear river flowing from, proceeding from, the throne of God and the Lamb, bringing the knowledge of God and the Lamb to all of the universe, bringing the power of God and the Lamb to all the universe, bringing the omnipotent love of God and the Lamb to all the universe. And the spirit of truth who guides us into truth makes truth more and more clear to us. So we have a correlation here, an arc of coherence, Revelation 22.1, Hebrews 9.8. We think of when Jesus applied healing to the blind man for the second time. The first time the man saw people as trees walking. The second time he saw all things clearly. That's a picture of the Holy Spirit making things go from obscurity to clarity. Eventually we see all people clarity, clearly because we see all people alive in Christ. For if Christ died for all, then all died. And when he rose, all rose with him. We begin to see as God sees that all are living to God in Luke twenty thirty-eight. So... We also have 1 Peter 1.11, the Spirit of Christ making it clear to the prophets. So you see a theme emerges here of clarity going along with consistency in biblical revelation and in biblical teaching. Later on in the homily called Hebrews, the PT observes the phrase, yet once more, in the prophecy of Haggai 2.6, drawing again from the Old Testament as he did from Psalm 110.1, 110.4, Jeremiah 31, 31-34, he draws from the law and the prophets and the Psalms. He draws from Haggai 2.6, much later in the discourse. But he says in Haggai 2.6, or actually in Hebrews 12.27, he uses the word delao, which is D-E-L. O, Omicron O, De La O. And that means to make clear again. And it's interesting how biblical writers would write, and they followed kind of like the tradition of the rabbis. As I've said before, there's a thing called Gezer Shawa, where one word might trigger the memory of an entire passage. A common word in two passages might correlate and bring an arc of coherence in itself to the reader or the preacher or the student. And so one word 
taken from the New Covenant prophecy, Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34, or the, we'd call it rather an oracle because it has many promises in it. But one word from Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34 is the word, the key word is new. And the writer takes up in that in 8.13, as we've seen, by saying new, he signals the absolute vanishing or the total vanishing of the old. The pastoral writer is warning the passing away of the old is has come in one sense, is coming in another. It has come in A.D. 30. It's coming in earnest with a historical representation and a historical manifestation, a dramatic one, in A.D. 70. And this audience finds themselves after A.D. 30 and just on the cusp, probably, of A.D. 70. And so... Later on, much later on, past Hebrews 8.13, the pastor observes a little phrase and takes a little phrase, this time not one word, which is kainos or new. This time he takes a single phrase called yet once more in the prophecy of Haggai and he uses that to make clear the suggestion of the removal of what can be shaken. What can be shaken, what can be dismantled, what can be destroyed is a tent of this creation. What cannot be destroyed, will not be destroyed, is the heavenly tent and the incarnated, resurrected, ascended, and seated Christ. So, in Hebrews 12.27, he takes this little phrase from Haggai 2.6, yet once more. And he says that this phrase, yet once more, in the prophecy of Haggai 2.6, made clear the suggestion of the removal of what can be shaken. That is, created things, like the tent of this creation. The second temple in Jerusalem can be shaken, will be shaken to them. So what is not shaken may remain, Hebrews twelve twenty six to 27. And yes, this does happen in our lives. The Lord shakes things in our lives, in our minds, in our mentality, in our conscience. Things that can be shaken, he'll shake. So that things that can't be shaken will remain. Condemning thoughts in our conscience, he shakes them and removes them. He leaves thoughts of justification, forgiveness, eternal salvation, eternal redemption. And so that all created things like the tent of this creation, the second temple in Jerusalem are, can be shaken so that what may not be and cannot be shaken may remain, Hebrews twelve twenty six and 27. The author is still on the same track. What is new signals the passing away of the old. Saying once more I will shake the heavens and the earth signals the shaking of what can be removed. Both of these fit splendidly and elegantly into a pastoral warning that 
what can be shaken is about to be shaken, the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70. What is old and antiquated is about ready to vanish altogether. That again points to the destruction in Jerusalem, or not a stone will be left upon a stone of these of this temple, as Jesus said it in his prophetic discourse on the Mount of Olives. And so, the author is brilliant in selecting passages like this. As he picks one single word, new, kainos, in Hebrews 8.13 from Jeremiah 31. 31, and he shows that it signifies the total vanishing of the old. He then goes into the old tent associated with the old covenant and the old system of sacrifices and priests about to vanish. So here in Hebrews 12:26 and 27, he uses and actually lifts the short phrase yet once more from the prophet Haggai in verse 6 of chapter 2, indicate a shaking of that which is of this creation, which he then relates to the man-made tent in Hebrews 9, 10, and 11, associated with the old covenant and all the institutions in connection with it. So he reminds his readers slash hearers that they're receiving an unshakable kingdom. We are receiving an unshakable kingdom and so he urges them to receive grace in Hebrews 12:28. Receive grace and don't receive it in vain in 2 Corinthians 6:1. Receive grace from whom? From the spirit of grace in Hebrews 10:29 who is associated with the new covenant and the blood of the new covenant. We are to we who are receiving a kingdom that cannot be moved are urged to receive grace in order to serve God acceptably, and by that he means to serve him as priests of a new order. 1 Peter 2.5, you are a royal priesthood, Revelation 1.5 and 6. Hebrews 10.21, we are a household of priests with a great archpriest over our household, the Son of God, Hebrews 3.6 and 10.21. And we are also ministers of a new covenant in 2 Corinthians 3, 6 to interweave that passage and also a ministry of reconciliation to the world in 2 Corinthians 5, 18 to 21. Now let's consider another shorter but not insignificant arc of coherence in Hebrews, namely the tent, and then we'll look at some scriptures in Hebrews for those of you that thought that we might have abandoned Hebrews, we haven't. And we'll look at Hebrews 8, 1 to 5 to start with, my translation. Now the sum of what we are saying is this. This sum should summarize the arc of coherence that we talked about in the very beginning. We have an archpriest who is of such significance that he is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, they're both the arc of coherence of the, pre, the great archpriesthood of Christ and his enthronement are carried through. Verse 2, a temple servant in the holy places of the true tent. There's the tent trajectory. Skene is the word, tent. 
The one pitched by the Lord, not man. What the Lord pitches can't be shaken. What man pitches can be shaken. What man makes can be shaken. What is of this so-called this creation can be shaken. What is of the new creation cannot be shaken. What God pitches can't be shaken. That is, when he pitches a tent. You see, verse 3, every archpriest, speaking of the Levitical, the old passing away Levitical order, which has entirely passed away now, every archpriest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Therefore, it is necessary that this priest, capitalized priest in that case, meaning Jesus, also have something to offer. In fact, if he were on earth, he wouldn't even be a priest since earthly priests, that's the Levitical priests, are those who offer gifts prescribed by the law. Verse 5, which gifts serve as a mere copy and shadow of the heavenly things, just as Moses was instructed when he was about to erect the tent, the tabernacle, skene, there it is, Ark of Coherence. For God said, See to it that you make everything according to the pattern you were shown on the mountain. That passage lifted from the law, as Jeremiah was lifted from the prophets, as Psalm 110 was lifted from the Psalms. The Hebrew writer goes all over the place, but he has a single arc of trajectory or an arc of coherence here, and with the arc of coherence, clarity. The tent ultimately is Jesus Christ, as we're going to see as we travel through Hebrews 9, 1 to 7, a little faster than we've been traveling. In John 1, 14, he became flesh and tented among us, skenao, and Hebrews 9, 8. The Spirit makes this clear, the same Spirit who glorifies Jesus Christ. Ultimately, the tent then is Jesus Christ, or at least represents him and his work and his ministry. So again, I want to emphasize this because this is part three of the A.D. 70 trajectory in Hebrews, the first two being 268 and 270. This is 274, so we did skip a, a couple. Notice three references in the passage in Hebrews 9 to the world. You can notice that. We're going to probably pick up that theme down the road, but the world, the cosmos. Hence, there's an indication or a connotation of the universally saving significance of Jesus Christ, the universally reconciling and redemptive and restorative impact of the cross of Christ, both. But I want to just take a look and advance our exegesis by going to Hebrews 9.1 here, 9.1. Now, indeed, the first... Now, what is he speaking of with the first? Protos. He's speaking of the first. What does he mean, the first? He means the first covenant. Now, indeed, the first covenant had, the imperfect tense is used here, indicating something like this. Now, the first covenant kept having, kept having associated with it. The imperfect tense of the verb is effectively an ongoing past tense. And this is where people say, well, then maybe this is written after the destruction of the temple because he's talking about something that kept on being associated in the past. But 
There's other indications in that dialectic we're not going to take up now. But Hebrews 9.2 says, and again, these are all my translations. Hebrews 9.2 says, for a tent was set up and equipped. It's a tripartite tent because the tent is a microcosm, even as the tripartite man, tripartite human being, spirit, soul, and body, is a microcosm of the universe. For a tripartite tent was set up and equipped. And I put in brackets this to clarify. Behind the first veil, the first room, not the first tent, that can be confusing. It's the first room of the tent or the first section of the one tent. So for a tripartite tent, a tent with three rooms, we could say, was set up and equipped. The first room, in the order of approach, contained the lampstand, the table, and the consecrated loaves of bread. We see those referred to in Matthew 12.4, in Mark 2.26, and Luke 6.4. And this room, he says, was called the Holies, simply the Holies. David went in that room and took the showbread right off the altar and fed his men, and it was lawful to do it because of the exigency of the circumstance. And Jesus used that to answer the Pharisees who were constantly hypercritical of him and of his disciples for plucking corn on a Sabbath day. And they did so because they needed to eat. So did David. But there's a little bit of confusion here because the order of these rooms and the furniture of these rooms is a little different in Hebrews than it is in parts of the Old Testament, and people get all up in the air about that and up in arms about it, but it's simply because there are two traditions in the description of the tent and the rooms of the tent and the placement of the furniture. Hebrews goes along with one tradition, others go along with another, but the point is that that's not the point. In fact, the writer is going to say this. This is one of those times where he says, okay, let, we're not going to get into all this minutia that the, loaf, uh, the bread of presentation speaks of this, the table looks like this, speaks of this, the gold overlay means this, and you go on and on and on, and you read books about symbolism. He's not doing a typology here. He's not interested in it. He's going to do the sketch of the old tent because his point is precisely to warn them of a coming judgment of the old system, the old temple, the old tent, and therefore to encourage them to stay with Jesus as it is to in, and also to commune with people who are with Jesus instead of going back to the old system. So let's continue with verse 2. For a tripartite tent was set up and equipped. Behind the first veil, that is, the first room in the order of approach contained the lampstand, the table, and the consecrated loaves of bread. Now, I will go, and this room was called, this room was called the holies. Now, the light of the world is what this speaks of. I can say something about this tent, about some of these meanings, because the lampstand speaks of the light 
of the world. And that's what I mean. Look for that word, the world, in John 8, 12. I am the light of the world, the saving light of the cosmos, of all people. The sacred bread prepared for eating, the table, trapeza, also represents the bread of life, which is again associated with the whole world because in the bread of life discourse in Capernaum, the manna midrash that Jesus proclaimed, he proclaimed himself as being the bread of life that came down from heaven, being the flesh of Christ, which is bread or life for the world, for the world in John 6.51. Universal saving significance of Jesus with the light of the world and the bread of life, life for the world in John 6.51. The world, the world. In Hebrews 9.3, after the second veil was the tent, there it is, skene, which means the section of the tent, called the Holy of Holies, having a golden altar of incense. We spoke about incense a little bit in our New Year's message in 2 Corinthians 2, 14 to 15. And the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold in which was held the golden jar of manna, the almond rod of Aaron, which sprouted. We'll get into these a little more detail down the road and the stone tablets, mentioned also in 2 Corinthians 3.3, of the covenant, and above it the cherubim of glory overshadowing the place of expiation, called the mercy seat. Concerning these things, we are not now to speak in detail. Notice what he said. Concerning these things, we are not now to speak in detail. Now, I debated on whether to speak in detail of all these things, which would take us down the road for a few months, or not to speak of these things in detail. A detailed exposition of the tent associated with the first covenant is not the immediate pastoral purpose of the PT who wrote Hebrews, so I'm not going to make it mine either. That's why I said we're going to move a little faster than you thought through this. Here's the point. And I think I'll put this in bold print if it's in print, when it gets to print. All of this, this whole description, this cursory description, this sketch of the tent is to make a specific point. The writer himself is leading his readers to the place of expiation, to Jesus Christ and him crucified. To Jesus Christ, the righteous one, who is the propitiation for the sins of the world. He's also putting a sharp edge on the warning that everything associated with the old covenant, everything of this creation, in other words, in Hebrews 9, 10, and 11, is about to be removed. So he's saying, look, I'm going to describe this tent. I'm going to describe its outer court, its inner court, its holy of holies, its tripartite nature. I'm going to give a little sketch of it. But my purpose isn't to write a book on what every little piece of furniture means. My purpose is to say that this is what's being shaken. This is what's being going to vanish. This symbolic is going to, is going to vanish. And so it's All of this is to put an edge on his warning. 
So Hebrews 9, 6, we'll go on, and we're going to wind this up soon. These preparations having been made, the priests on the one hand enter into the first tent. That's the first room of the this worldly tent. All the time, he says. They, in other words, they keep on doing it. They keep on doing it. It's a redundant, continual, repeated thing. The priests, on the one hand, enter the first tent all the time, continually to perform the duties of their ministry. But into the second tent, that's past the second veil, into the Holy of Holies is what he's talking about. Once a year, only the archpriest, and I love this little phrase, never without blood, never without blood, never without blood to offer in behalf of himself and the people for sins committed in, arrog- in ignorance. And yes, there are some committed in arrogance. The next section of our message I would label the law of similarity and dissimilarity with the emphasis on dissimilarity. The law of similarity and dissimilarity is deployed here as is throughout most of Hebrews with the scales tipping toward the dissimilar. Similarly, if we want to use the law of similarity and dissimilarity, let's look at the similarity part. Similarly, Jesus the archpriest entered once into the Holy of Holies. Dissimilarly, not once a year, but once for all and forever. And in the heavenly holy of holies, not the earthly. Similarly with blood, Jesus, similarly with the Old Testament priests, with blood. But dissimilarly, not with the blood of others, that is sacrificial animals, but with his own blood. Similarly, he went into the Holy of Holies, where angels sing, holy, holy, holy. But dissimilarly, into the heavenly and future worldly, not the earthly and this worldly, holy of holies. Dissimilarly, again, Jesus, the archpriest of the new, not the old, the second, not the first covenant, entered, etc., Similarly, Jesus went in to offer a sacrifice for sins, but dissimilarly, not for himself, Hebrews 9, or Daniel 9.26, not for the people of Israel only, like the Old Testament priests, but for the sins of the world, he himself being without sin, so not making a sacrifice for his own sins like the Old Testament priests, but having made to be sin on the cross, and not only for sins committed in ignorance, but all sins, whether done in ignorance or cognizance, all the sins of all the world of humanity over the course of all time, that's diachronically. The PT is in, is what, what he's doing here is very practical. He's making it mighty unattractive to remain with the old order. And with the old, the about-to-be-vanishing-altogether covenant. And he's making it mighty attractive, on the other hand, to leave it for Jesus and the new, the better, the everlasting covenant of which he is the mediator. Now, these people had left the old, 
and we're clinging to Jesus and the new covenant. But the temptation and the pressure was to go back while threatened by persecution. So Hebrews 9, 8. The Holy Spirit thus, please notice this, making it clear that the road, here's the king's highway for you, the highway to the holiest place of all was not made manifest while the first tent is still standing. So as I've said before, A.D. 70 meant the pulling up of the tent pegs of the old, pulling down the poles, folding up the old tent as it were. Notice that the Holy Spirit makes this clear. The job of the Holy Spirit, the hegemonic spirit, the Lord the Spirit, is to make clear de lao, the meaning of the scriptures. De lao, the meaning of the scriptures. The dissimilarity of the two tents and all that was associated with them is striking. It slaps you upside the head in order to make clear to the readers the choice they had to make once and for all and with finality. It seems clear that the service of the old covenant was continuing even as Jesus was in the region beyond the second veil in heaven. Both of these things had been going on. It seems clear to me that this was still going on in Jerusalem. And we'll have to depend on the Spirit to make it very clear. It is clear, but we need it to be very clear. Speaking of that highway, I'm reading from Hebrews 10, 19 through 23. Therefore, brothers and sisters, having confidence that we have the right of entry into the heavenly sanctuary by the blood of Jesus on the newly paved and living highway right through the curtain, that is, his flesh, and having a great archpriest over the household of God. Notice the arc of coherence in all these themes, the blood of Christ, the living highway, the great archpriest over the household of God. Let's approach with a heart made authentic with full assurance, hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and bodies washed with pure water. This is not a reference to water baptism, but the bath that the Levitical priests took before entry into their service. It's an allusion to that. Let's hold on tight, verse 23, to the acknowledgement of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. And we'll close by exegeting or translating, starting with verse 9 of Hebrews 9. We're going all the way through verse 16. This is a parable, he says, for the present time in which both gifts and offerings are still being presented, which are not able to completely cleanse the conscience of the worshiper, having to do only with foods and drinks and various washings. That's not what the kingdom of God is all about, not food and drink, but righteousness, peace, and joy. Regulations involving the body until the offering of the body of Jesus once for all, of course, in Hebrews 10.10, imposed until the time of the new order, deorthosis. Verse 11, at the heart and center of Hebrews, now the Messiah has come as an archpriest of the good things that have come. That's the alteration of the situation and that are coming. That's the alteration of the universal condition. Through the greater and more complete tent, not made by human hands, that is, not of this creation, therefore not shakable, as we learn from Hebrews 12, 26 to 27. He entered once and for all, says verse 12, through the sanctuary, having obtained eternal redemption, 
For if the blood of he goats and bulls and the ashes of a young cow sprinkled on polluted people serve to sanctify for the purification of the body or the flesh, and it did, then how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, purify our conscience from dead works so that we can serve the living God, meaning as priests. So in closing, in our ultimate closing, Hebrews 9.15, the theme of the new covenant reappears. See the arc of, of coherence there. I could have split this up into two messages, but I had to keep this arc of coherence, so it's a longer message. In Hebrews 9.15, the theme of the new covenant reappears with an analogy to a will and testament. The only time it ever happens in the Bible is right here, in a covenant analogy with testament or a will and testament, last will and testament of someone. In this analogy, blood and death are equated while a will and testament is made analogous to the new covenant. Why analogous? Because in a will, a last will and testament, for that to benefit the ones it's written to, the testator has to die. And for the covenant, the new covenant, to help the whole world and save the whole world, the maker of the covenant has to shed blood, his own blood. In this analogy, blood and death are equated while a will and testament is made analogous to the new covenant, the testament requiring the death of the testator, the covenant requiring the blood of sacrifice. So blood equals death, is equivalent with death. It's dynamically equivalent with death. When Jesus died on the cross and blood and water emitted from his side, that was a testimony of his death, the death of the Lamb of God, and therefore the fact that the sin of the world had been taken away by the unblemished Lamb who offered himself to God the Father through the eternal spirit. So Hebrews 9.15 reads this way. Now because of this, he is the mediator of the new covenant, an arc of coherence all the way back to Hebrews 8.6. A death occurred for the redemption or the forgiveness of the transgressions committed under the first covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. And I'm introducing these themes very sketchily, and I'll be picking up on them in future messages. Eternal inheritance is another theme, and eternal inheritance that those who are called is related to eternal salvation to those who obey him in Hebrews 5.9 and eternal redemption secured by Jesus' blood in Hebrews 9.12. And that opens the door for the analogy of the everlasting covenant to a will and testament in Hebrews 9.16. For where there is a last will and testament, he says, evidence of the death of the one who makes the will must be produced. Well, we're going to receive the benefits of the will of our father. Well, really? Well, you've got to prove that your father has died. I need evidence of his death. I need a certificate. Well, the same is true. Where there is a last will and testament, evidence, and that's the blood, the blood that flowed from the side of Jesus along with water in John 19:34-35 Blood was evidence of the death of the one who makes the will and therefore we inherit eternally because we can produce the evidence 
and the certificate of the death of the testator, the blood of Jesus Christ. And by that same blood, we can enter into the holiest place of all and go in with confidence, knowing that he who promised is faithful. And we'll look at more of these things down the road. So, Father, I thank you, and I pray that this message, though through stammering lips of a servant who is in desperate need of your grace, I pray that it will proceed forth and enter into the souls of those who hear it with order, with coherence, and with clarity. And may we see Jesus all the more clearly because of this message and because of the Holy Spirit who makes all things clear. In Jesus' name, amen.